Well, friends, today in the church, we are still in what we call the season of Easter tide. That is the 50-day period between Easter and Pentecost. Uh, that's why we're wearing white today. There's still white pyramids on our table. We're still uh, thinking about and learning about Easter and what it meant. Uh, and so our lectionary encourages us during this time uh, to read and preach on passages from Acts, right? The book of Acts or Acts of the Apostles, so that we can think about what it was like to be part of the early church. So I'm going to do that today as I read Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now this is a story from the life of Paul and just as Mike was just saying to the kids about how we can look around our beautiful sanctuary and see some of these famous folks from Scripture depicted, uh, we are graced this morning with, with a picture right here uh, in this stained glass of this very scene that I'm going to read from the book of Acts. This is Paul right in the middle there uh, at, at, in Athens preaching to the Oropagus. There are people on his right and people on his left uh, as they listen to him trying to uh, share the gospel with them and trying to change their way of thinking, right, to bring them around uh, to believe in Jesus. And so if you, if you can't see it up close from your seat now, I encourage you uh, after the service today to, to move up closer and to, to look at that beautiful portrayal of this passage. So we might remember... Uh, that Paul had a very interesting story. He began as a Pharisee, right, a very virulent, uh, vociferous Pharisee, and he, he pushed hard uh, for the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish way of life. And then he had that day, that, that vision on the road to Damascus where he saw Jesus, and Jesus said, Paul, why are you, why are you persecuting me? And so Paul had a change of mind and a change of heart, and he began, uh, instead, of, instead of persecuting the Christians, he began to preach the Christian gospel, right? Uh, and now this was a very, very difficult thing for him to do. He was subjected to all kinds of, of opposition and, and persecution. He was even thrown in jail. And so we see this scene of Paul in Athens as, again, he makes his way to Athens and he tries to convince the folks there to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to be reading today from Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. But before I open up God's Word, let's bow our heads in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you uh, for what is written in our scriptures, and we thank you for what is depicted in our stained glass as well. And now we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open up our hearts, open up our minds to hear you once again. We pray this all in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. All right, here's what happened to Paul in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because 
He was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and he said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, quote, to an unknown God, end quote. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he's not far from each one of us. For, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, end quote. As even some of your own poets have said, quote, for we too are his offspring, end quote. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals, while God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. But others said, hmm, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Why don't you pray with me one more time? Gracious God, you have given these pearls of wisdom like a gift to us this morning. So please help us to focus on them, to, to really hear them and what they are saying to us from the, the life and the days of Paul into our life today, Lord, that they may help us to go out and, and proclaim the gospel for you in Sewickley and beyond. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I say the name Steve Jobs to you all, remember former head CEO of Apple or Apple Computers, uh, what descriptors would come to your mind? Now, while you're thinking of that in your own mind, I'll tell you what Wikipedia 
says of Steve Jobs, what descriptors they give. A Wikipedia uses terms for him like business magnet, inventor, investor, and pioneer of the personal computer revolution. Right? They're all, those are all good words. I'm sure some of you came up with some of those. His innate genius helped him to produce products like the Mac personal computer, right? Amazing, the first mass-produced personal computer. And the iPod and the iPhone, and my favorite, the first computer-animated film ever, which was, I'll give it to you, Toy Story, right? Toy Story, awesome movie, right? Steve Jobs, we could thank him for that. And all of these inventions have revolutionized our lives today. He was a genius, really. But if you've read anything about his time at Apple, or maybe you've seen one or the two or three or however many there were movies about his life, you will recall that he was not an easy guy to work for, right? That's kind of putting it mildly. He was a it's-my-way-or-the-highway kind of leader, right? He wanted, to, he wanted to drive every idea. And so if I told you that Steve Jobs, former CEO of Apple, was originally dead set against cell phones and wanted nothing to do with producing them, you'd probably shake your head at me and reach into your pocket or your pocketbook and pull out your iPhone and go, up, oh, pastor, right, looky here. But it's true. It's true. Jobs' very strong convictions could sometimes hold the company back. And that's exactly what was happening to Apple as they were struggling financially in the early 2000s. So a group of his employees came to him and very carefully <laughs> asked him to consider adding a phone to their very successful iPod. To which Jobs replied, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Okay, expletive, 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 right? If you know Steve Jobs, he never, you know, never lost the chance to add a good expletive in there, right? That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. He swore, he swore he would never make a cell phone. But thankfully, for all of you who have the, the iPhones in your pocket, Steve Jobs didn't just have the ability to think, he had the ability to rethink his own beliefs or opinions, or as I'm calling it this morning, to think again. So again, very carefully, the Apple employees urged him to rethink his convictions about cell phones. It is possible, they said, to keep what is great about the iPod and to add the features of the phone and, and to have the cell phone companies do it their way, Apple's way, meaning. Yes, yes, the device would change, but the core of it being an Apple product would stay the same. Apple was going to continue to be a computer company, but a computer company that also made cell phones. So just four years after it launched in 2007, the iPhone accounted for half of all of Apple's revenues, right? Successful. And this year, Apple holds the largest market share for smartphones around 30%, right? I think we know that. But we didn't know the origin, right? We didn't know the original story. 
Because asking someone to rethink their core values or beliefs is really, really a tough sell. And as we live in a world in which political views and religious views and social views are very staunchly held by all sides, even the thought of having a conversation in which we're trying to convince somebody of something else, well, that can, it can send shivers up our spine. And why is that? Well, as a society, we like to see, we see our opinions as defining us. We're either part of this group or we're part of that group, depending on our beliefs. It's part of who we are. We like to stay with the opinions that make us feel good instead of ideas that make us think hard. And if we think, and, and if we, we do that, if we change, right, if we change our minds to somebody else's opinion, well, then we're afraid that we're going to be seen as weak, right? Or maybe not somebody to be respected because we don't stick to our guns, as we like to say. Now, this is not something new in 2023. Finding it difficult to ask somebody to rethink their position is as old as the human race. So just imagine how the Apostle Paul felt as he committed his life to sharing this brand new gospel, this brand new idea about this resurrected man. Imagine how difficult it was to tell a polytheistic culture about Jesus. Imagine a society without the church, right? Without this church, without any church. And then having to go forward and ask people to believe, hey, this guy, he came from God and he rose from the dead. What? You think that was easy? Well, heavens, no. I'd say it was harder. It was harder for Paul than it was getting Steve Jobs to switch over to producing the iPhone. The book of Acts in our Bibles details many, many of Paul's struggles in sharing the gospel. If you want to know more about his struggles, I suggest you go home today, open your Bibles to maybe the beginning, or not the beginning, sorry, the middle, like around chapter 13 of Acts, and read about his trials and tribulations. It was a very tough situation Paul was dealing with. There were minds devoted to pagan gods. There were minds closed to Christ, minds even hostile to Paul himself as a person. It honestly reads more like a Netflix series <laughs> than Scripture. It really does. And in the midst of this turmoil, here today we see Paul as he is forced out of one city after another and he finds himself in Athens, a cosmopolitan city where people believed all kinds of things. And he is invited to speak to the Oropagus, which is like their city council the decision makers, right? And he tries in this passage to get them to rethink their beliefs. Well, how did he do it? Well, let's, let's take a look. Let's tease out bits of our scripture today. Paul begins his sermon to them by complimenting them. Did you notice that? He says, I know that you are extremely religious. Okay, Paul's a religious man, right? Always has been. He doesn't resort to name-calling. He doesn't call them heathens or pagans or unbelievers. No, he says he knows there are people who are searching for God just like he is. 
people who realize the importance of religion in their life. He uses this not just as flattery, but as a point of commonality with them. He's basically saying, like, we're all the same, you and I, right? Underneath it all, we're all the same. We're all searching, aren't we? And then he talks about how he has observed their own culture. And he uses bits of their own culture as a launching pad for the gospel. The first thing he says is, hey, I've been walking around your city, and I saw this statue, I saw this, this altar, this shrine that you have erected, and underneath it, it says, to an unknown God. He says, so I'm here to help you. I'm here to fill in this blank there. I'm here to tell you who this unknown God is. Who is this God you're searching for? I'm going to help you with that. He says, the real God is the one who created heaven and earth and everything in it, and We don't really need to make a a stone shrine to that God. And then he quotes two lines of Greek poetry that they would all be familiar with. He says, the first one he says, again, this is as a launching pad for talking about God. He says, "In in him we live and move and have our being. That's the first phrase he uses. And then he uses, for we too are his offspring. And this is not the Hebrew Scriptures he's quoting. It is not. Because if he would quote the Hebrew Scriptures to them, if he would go, you know that guy Moses, he was full of faith, right? They would go, who's Moses, right? So he's using these lines of Greek poetry that they would be familiar with. He says God is not made, he's not an object, right? Made of silver or gold or concrete like your statues are. No, God is a spiritual Father who created us all in His image, right? Thus, for we too are His offspring. See, see, your poetry even agrees with this. And you can just see them all shaking their heads in agreement. You can look at our stained glass and just, you know, imagine the folks shaking their heads in agreement with Him. Aha, I see what you're saying as He pulls them along. And then he brings them in for the final reveal, which is his, his version of the gospel that he tells them that day. He says, God has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, raising Jesus from the dead. Right? That's his zinger at the end, right? We all have our assurance, our hope in the Lord because Jesus was raised from the dead. And what do you think the reaction was of this crowd up here, this crowd to Paul's speech, right? Well, verse 32 tells us what the reaction was. Some people scoffed. Hmm, don't believe that. Some people wanted to hear more. So we'd like to sit down with you over coffee and discuss your ideas. And some immediately believed and followed Paul. Scripture says even a a member of, of the Oropagus itself believed and started to follow Paul, right? I mean, this is what happens when any new idea is shared, right? Even today. Some refuse it, resist it. Some say, you know what, I'd like to I'd like to read up more on that idea. And some agree. Some immediately agree with you, right? 
So Paul, he, he changed the world with this kind of rhetoric, this style of rhetoric. He planted the seeds of the church in its infancy with this style of rhetoric, and his style of rhetoric is being read today and is still winning people over for the gospel today. That's pretty impressive, I would say. <laughs> and so, as we look at these words of Paul, as we come into our church for worship and discipleship and mission events, well, we want to change the world too, right? We want our discipleship to matter. We want our words to matter and our actions to matter and our love to matter. And so we need, to, we need to recognize Paul and his style of, of trying to get people to rethink their beliefs, right? We need to recognize that, and we need to, to learn from that as well. And we need to also understand that there are modern-day sources that help us do this as well, right? Help us to encourage people to rethink. In particular, I'm thinking about a book by modern-day author Adam Grant called Think Again. This is a marvelous book. I encourage anyone to read it, especially if you're, you know, trying to get into politics or anything like that. We're in a position where you're trying to convince people of your ideas, right? Now, this is a not super large book, but something that I can't really summarize in 30 seconds. But I do want to leave you with three quick points from Adam Grant that are very, very instructive for our lives of, of discourse today. Stephanie, if you'd put that slide up, please. Uh, the, what the first major, major point that Adam Grant uses in his book is the power of knowing what you don't know. Okay? I mean, spoiler alert, right? None of us know everything, right? We don't know everything. And so we need to approach all conversations we have with humility and the recognition that we don't know it all, right? We need to have an open desire to learn and even accept information that goes against what we think, right? The power of knowing what you don't know. The second tip is to see our conversations with others as a dance and not a war, you open up Twitter and it's just, you know, it's just people knocking heads with one another, but you don't get anywhere like that, right? You need to flatter people and find points of commonality with people, and you take one step forward in the conversation by advancing your idea, and then you take two steps back by listening to them, right? It's sort of like a waltz, right, and not a war. And then I think his best piece of advice of all, and this is something that none of us like to think about ever, <laughs> the third one up there, embrace the joy of being wrong. Yes, the joy of being wrong. Again, spoiler alert, right? We're not always right. And our opinions and our beliefs are not always right. In his book, Adam Grant recalls this lunch he had with the Nobel Prize winning psychologist Daniel Kahneman. At this lunch, they had just come from a lecture that Adam Grant had given. And Kahneman opened up the conversation by going, Adam, in your lecture, you actually proved that something I believed was wrong. And instead of Kahneman getting angry and defensive and, you know, digging his heels in, his eyes lit up and this huge grin appeared on Kahneman's face. And he said, that was wonderful. I was wrong. <laughs> 
He rejoiced in being wrong because he knew that was how he would grow as a thinker and as a person, right, as we all grow as humans. So I want to be clear now today as we're talking about convincing and rethinking and thinking again, I want to be clear that I am not advocating that any of us need to rethink our belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, right? That one I'm going to my grave with. (laughs) Going to my grave with it. But if we want to change the world for Jesus, if we want to be like Paul and really go out there and change the world, we need to rethink how we share the gospel in our cosmopolitan polytheistic society. So I urge us all to take a cue from Paul at the Oropagus and use flattery and commonality and things from the culture, you know, whether it's Instagram, TikTok, contemporary music, whatever it is, to share the gospel. And, and to apply these amazing strategies from Adam Grant when we're having conversations with people who are resistant, right, with people who don't want to hear the gospel. And, of course, sometimes we need to apply those, those strategies to ourselves as well, right? We all want to change the world. We all want to bring the gospel to a new generation. And sometimes we all need to think again. Praise be to God. Amen.